Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A quarter of the mind, an endless vault, crammed with evidence, proof, clues. Me, I like to go there and poke around. A book of poems by Emily Dickinson. Flowers pressed between its pages. Oh, I, I wonder if this old radio still works. I must interrupt the dance music for a moment. I have an urgent message from police headquarters. Oh, creepy. Imagine that this place, this chamber of knowledge, is all that stands between a reasonable doubt and the chaos of uncertainty. That it lies somewhere in a time between now and then. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. I'm Jill Lepore. Step outside to a noisy street in the bustling, rowdy city of New York in the year... This time, we don't have to go very far. The year 2019. 15. 25. Maybe we could get in behind. Maybe there's an alley on one side. This area, this area is under constant videotape surveillance. Just in case she comes back, that's 19. On a sweltering day in July, my producer Ben and I went to New York to find an invisible woman. She was invisible, and she was also dead, long dead, so not an easy search. 
but I have a rule about doing historical research, which is that you should always go to the scene of the crime, even if it wasn't a crime. The spot where it happened, the thing you're interested in. Even if there's nothing there anymore, because people lived and died. And if you're going to try to understand them, you owe it to them to breathe their air. If we're looking for 21 Park Row or what used to be 21, would it be in that? This is one Beekman right here. We had an address on Park Row. It's in Lower Manhattan, near the new World Trade Center. A long time ago, this part of town used to be the theater district. But now 21 Park Row is a construction site. Ben and I were on the hunt for whatever might remain of a place called the Shakespeare Gallery. The Shakespeare Gallery was a sort of exhibit space where in the year 1804, an invisible lady was put on display. Visitors could come see her, if you could call it that, in a glass box, the way you'd pay a penny to see a two-headed calf or a bearded lady or the tiniest man. A freak show. Come see the invisible lady. Somewhere beneath that construction site, the Shakespeare Gallery is long gone, demolished, forgotten, buried. So we went to a park across the street to see what we could see. We could not confirm or deny, but she could be in the construction site. She came and went. And then she just vanished. Again. (laughs) (laughs) It was lunch hour, a work day, and the park was crowded. All around us, people had their phones out taking selfies, streaming video, uploading whatever to wherever, trying to make themselves visible to someone, somewhere. On this season of The Last Archive, we're trying to solve a crime. Who killed Truth? I had a hunch that the invisible lady, the invisible lady we were looking for, that she had something to do with the answer. We started in episode one, asking, what is a fact? That took us all the way back to the year 1215. Then we asked, how can you tell if someone's telling the truth? That took us to the nutty history of the lie detector. This episode we're asking, can you believe stuff that you can't see? People want to know things, but people also like to hide things. The search for knowledge, then, is always bumping up against the right to privacy. That's what interests me most about the strange story of the invisible lady from the year 1804. After all, how often do you meet an invisible lady? Hello, I'm Siri, your virtual assistant. Uh, okay, maybe pretty often. I don't know about you, but I hear from invisible ladies all the time. Invisible ladies who seem to know everything. They're all over the place. But why? Why can women know things only when they're disembodied? It was cold when she got to New York, the winter of 1804. Notices of her arrival appeared all over the city, and newsboys shouted from street corners. Get your evening post. Get your Chronicle Express here. On Monday, we'll commence an exhibition in the Shakespeare Gallery near the theater. That extraordinary phenomenon, the invisible lady. She has come to the city to see, if not to be seen. All the town is agog to visit the invisible lady. The invisible lady didn't turn up in New York and stay for only a day or a week. No, she stayed for a long time, for months. Then she went on tour all over the country. Before Barnum and his museum and his freak shows, 
The Invisible Lady was just about the most popular attraction in the United States. You'd get your ticket good anytime from 9 in the morning till 9 at night, except for a lunch hour. And then you'd go into the gallery, a small room by the theater, where they'd show exhibits and spectacles. It was a bit like a peep show, and a little porny in that way. What you'd see when you walked into the room was an eerily beautiful glass box, about the size of a coffin, suspended from the ceiling by four golden cords. It looked empty, but if you bent close to the speaking trumpets made of brass that poked out of the corners, you could hear her voice. Probably it sounded something like this. I don't know. But you could hear her breathing even. I can see you. You can see us? Okay, what am I wearing? Of course I'm in the room right now. I, you're in the room. I can smell I what you had I, for dinner. I wish that I could see It's disgusting. My astonishment was extreme. I thought at first that this voice was that of a ventriloquist. But there couldn't have been a ventriloquist, because even if the room was empty except for you, you could still talk with her. Scholars, reporters, ordinary people, they all tried to figure it out. What can be the cause of a phenomenon so astonishing? It was incredibly fun. The thing to do was to ask her questions, all sorts of questions, as if she were an oracle or a psychic fortune teller. Have you been to heaven? Is there a god? What am I thinking about right now? Who will be our next president? She was super chatty. If you were lucky, she might even sing to you. People came up with all kinds of theories about how this lady could be invisible. If there wasn't a ventriloquist, maybe there was some sort of contraption involved? Either way, she was a mystery. She defied facts. It is hoped by some of our cognoscenti that the mystery will be here unveiled. Okay, so no one actually believed that the Invisible Lady was a mystery in the sense of being a miracle. They thought she was a mystery in the newer, modern, secular sense. A secret to be discovered. The secret of this wonderful machine appears to me well worthy of exciting public curiosity and will not fail to give occasion for the researches of those who wish to comprehend and explain everything. People really wanted to know how this gimmick worked, and they couldn't figure it out. Or if they figured it out, they kept quiet. So honestly, I didn't want to spill the beans either. But Ben and I, back in that park, had been sweating it out empty-handed for a long time, lazy Ghostbuster style. And Ben really wanted to know. How did it actually work? So how it actually worked is, and this is lifting the magician's veil and violating the one pledge of all mysticism. How it worked is that the building was adjusted before the invisible lady came to town to make a place in the ceiling, between the ceiling and the floor, above the room where the invisible lady's box was, where a very small woman would be hidden. So she could witness everything that was going on. And the audio was... Um, essentially delivered via a system of tubes from her little crawl space above the ceiling and below the upper floorboards down into a little hole in the box. So when she spoke from that crawl space into the tube, her voice came out 
of the box. So it really did seem like she was inhabiting the box. It was really about the the particular kind of plumbing arrangement. But people were just looking at an empty box. People were just looking at an empty box. But she could be really responsive because she could see them and she could hear everything. If you could ask the invisible lady anything, what would you ask her? What's it like to be invisible? I mean, the thing that's so funny about it to me, like if you were invisible in New York City in the 19th century, like would you go put yourself on display in a box and be like stuck in a room? It'd be so cool. You could go anywhere and see anything and do anything and get away with anything. Ever since I first came across the story of the invisible lady, I figured the whole attraction had to do with privacy and the thrill of invading a woman's privacy. I liked this theory of mine. I got pretty committed to it. Sometimes when you do research, you're chronicling a person's life or reconstructing an event. But sometimes you follow a theme. And once I got interested in the invisible lady, I started seeing invisible ladies, or I guess not seeing them, everywhere. And then I started taking my theory about them more seriously, when one day, poking around in the last archive, I came across an essay written by Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Higginson was the editor of the famously private poet Emily Dickinson. He'd almost certainly seen The Invisible Lady when he was a kid. Everyone did. And then years later, in 1881, he wrote an essay called, yes, The Invisible Lady. The Invisible Lady, as advertised in all our cities a good many years ago, was a mysterious individual who remained unseen. Higginson thought that The Invisible Lady was a big, fat metaphor. She lived on in the minds of men who believed that a woman is best off when least visible. He was talking about the Victorian fetish for privacy, which he thought was mostly about keeping women out of view. I agree. I think it's mainly about political oppression. Keep women out of sight and say you're protecting their delicate nature, their chastity, as a way to deny them a role in public life, including denying them the right to vote. To many men, doubtless, she would have seemed the ideal of her sex, could only her brain and tongue have disappeared like the rest of her faculties. These appeals, which still meet us for the sacred privacy of woman, are only the invisible lady on a larger scale. Higginson was a radical, a militant abolitionist, and a women's rights activist, a suffragist. He'd met Emily Dickinson when, almost out of the blue, she'd written him a letter in 1862, unsigned, and she'd enclosed a poem. Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? Emily Dickinson comes across as more than a little intense in this note. But Higginson took her on as a writer. And I like to think that when he got upset about the ridiculous Victorian cult of the invisible lady, he was worrying about Dickinson and about how tired he was of this kind of invisible woman swishing around in her skirts, trapped in her house. Dickinson was an obscure and unknown poet her whole life. She hardly ever left her house. The cult of privacy, the idea that women should not be seen, she'd taken it very seriously. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody, too? When I read Dickinson's poems, it's as if I can hear her speak to me from her box of glass through a trumpet of brass. How dreary to be somebody. How public. Like a frog. And it is dreary to be somebody public, like a frog. 
but it's also dreary to be private, invisible, and locked in a box. Higginson knew that once women got out of that box, there was no going back. Before you know it, women would be casting ballots and running for office, and Lord knows what else. You might as well try to stop the air in its escape from a punctured balloon as to try when woman is once out of the harem to put her back there. Ceasing to be an invisible lady, she must become a visible force. There is no middle ground. I closed my book of Emily Dickinson poems and put it back on the shelf. And then I resumed my hunt for the invisible lady, chasing her across the passage of time. I turned over boxes. I unlocked ancient trunks. I pursued her through the musty pages of old newspapers. At last, I found her. She was lying in a casket, covered in flowers, swarmed by reporters. At a funeral in Delaware in the year 1886, you can visit the churchyard, just around the corner, from the last archive. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat-earth theory, and why some still believe the Earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Emily Dickinson died in 1886. That same year, another lady who wished to remain unseen was also laid to rest, Louisa Bayard. Her funeral took place in Wilmington, Delaware, on a winter's day. God the Father, have mercy on us. God the Son, have mercy on us. You'd think this would be a very private occasion, a funeral. But Louisa Bayard, this particular invisible lady, had been the wife of the Secretary of State. And reporters flooded the church. The body of Mrs. Bayard was consigned to the family vault today in Old Swede's churchyard while the sun shone brightly on the crisp but slowly thawing snow. All funerals are tragedies, but this one, this one was a melodrama. And let me add here that just about everything I'm telling you about this funeral comes from an ingenious Law Journal article written by the legal scholar Amy Gaia. She teaches at Tulane Law School, and she's writing a book called The Secret History of the Right to Privacy. I can't wait to read it. Anyway, as Gaia discovered, Bayard's funeral had been a melodrama, not only because Louisa Bayard was the wife of a famous politician, but also because hers was the second of two funerals that this family had endured that month. The Secretary of State's wife died two weeks after her daughter, and it's a long story. She blamed herself for her daughter's death. So did the public. Newspaper reporters speculated, hinted obliquely, that Mrs. Bayard had taken her own life. One way or another, after her daughter, she died of grief. Mrs. Bayard, though she was the wife of the Secretary of State, had been a particularly private person, an invisible lady an invalid who'd not left her house for years. For the funeral, the Bayards wanted privacy, begged for privacy. No such luck. The family had deliberately concealed her casket, hidden it in flowers. But instead of taking the hint, reporters just described the flowers. At the head rested a pillow of camellias, interwoven with maidenhair fern, an offering from the president. There were also a massive cross of purple violets, with a bunch of calla lilies bursting from the center from the ladies of the cabinet, crosses of white roses and tulips, wreaths of white flowers, an anchor, cross and wreath, combined in white roses with sprays of green, a pillow of violets bordered with lilies of the valley and wreaths of palm. I mean, geez, it was a lot. This kind of reporting was called at the time keyhole journalism. Photographers did the same thing. They even came to the funeral. One newspaper described the order of the funeral procession. The secretary, accompanied by his three unmarried daughters, were followed by Mr. and Mrs. Warren of Boston and Philip I and Thomas M. Mr. Warren and Mrs. Warren of Boston. Mrs. Warren was another Bayard daughter, the former Mabel Bayard, now married to Mr. Samuel Warren, a Boston lawyer. And the fact that they were at this funeral, that Samuel Warren was there, became central to something you probably hold very dear, the right to privacy. Marrying into the Bayard family had nearly driven Samuel Warren nuts. Warren didn't like his family, especially his wife, being in the limelight. And the newspaper coverage of his mother-in-law's funeral was the last straw. He was appalled at the reporter's at the news stories. The family felt so exposed, so violated. His poor wife, her sister dead and now her mother, dead from grief, on display, as if she were trapped in a glass box, placed on a stage. Warren nourished his rage, 
How could they? And he got an idea for a way that the law could stop this sort of thing. He began drafting an essay with his law partner, a young man named Louis Brandeis. Warren and Brandeis had graduated first and second in their law school class. They decided to write an essay about privacy, partly because Warren was so upset about publicity and partly to advertise the services of their law firm. The article appeared in 1890. It's been described as the single most influential law review article ever published. It was titled, The Right to Privacy. When you hear about a right to privacy, every time you talk about a right to privacy, like you don't think your employer should be reading your email, you don't think the government should decide whether or not you can have an abortion, you don't think Facebook should sell your data, Every time you even think about a right to privacy, you're pulling on an idea that originated with Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis in this essay they wrote in 1890, because they were upset over the press coverage of Mrs. Bayard's funeral. Historically, the right to privacy has to do with women. A couple of years before Mrs. Bayard's funeral, Congress had actually entertained a piece of legislation called a bill to protect ladies. It would have prohibited the circulation or publication of unauthorized photographs of the wife, daughter, mother, or sister of any citizen of the United States. Believe me, the right to privacy is about keeping women unseen. Instantaneous photographs and newspaper enterprise have invaded the sacred precincts of private and domestic life. The right to privacy, Warren and Brandeis said, was a lot like the right to property, like owning a house. Violating that right was like breaking into your house, peeping through keyholes. But it was also worse, because the violation of privacy, peering through keyholes, peeping through curtains, constitutes a kind of wound, a puncturing of your soul, of the walls of your very self. And that kind of wound might, in the end, deprive you of your reason. Numerous mechanical devices threaten to make good the prediction that what is whispered in the closet shall be proclaimed from the housetops. The right to privacy, when you think about it, is a right to hide, a right to have both a public self, a self that people can see, and a private self, a self that remains unseen. Warren and Brandeis weren't just trying to hide women, or one particular woman like Louisa Bayard. They were now terrified that all these new machines could expose each and every man and woman, every person. Their idea had a lot in common with what William James the same year, in 1890, called the hidden self. James was a philosopher who trained as a physician. He was the founder of modern American psychology. Psychology, if you think about it, is the study of what's invisible, this whole field of inquiry whose scope is the stuff most of us consider private, the inside of your own head, the stuff you hide the way, say, Dr. Jekyll hides, Mr. Hyde. But psychologists believed science could penetrate the mind and expose your hidden self. It's a very scary idea. That's why Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a thriller. It was written in 1886, the very year Mrs. Bayard died. Another wildly popular thriller from that very same moment is even scarier. A novel written by H.G. Wells. It's called The Invisible Man. Later, it became a film. I watched it, dimly projected in the dark recesses of the last archive.
all business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I left off in 1897 when H.G. Wells wrote a novel. And that's when the Invisible Lady met the Invisible Man. H.G. Wells' book, The Invisible Man, was made into a movie in 1933. I saw it when I was a kid. I saw it a lot. There used to be, every Saturday afternoon on Channel 38, my local TV station, creature double feature, back-to-back black-and-white horror films. I watched them every week with my favorite snack, which I somehow thought was glamorous, ketchup, mayonnaise, and cucumbers. But Invisible Man was my favorite, and I made a costume. I dressed up just like him. And I thought, okay, I was five, that when I was wearing it, I was invisible. All of which is to say, this is a vitally important film, not because it's on some list of greatest films, but because of those cucumbers. I want a room and a fire. Jenny! Hello? There's a gent here who wants a room and a fire. 
What a bully! The Invisible Man stars Claude Rains as a chemist who's made himself invisible, sort of accidentally. Bum deal for the chemist. Really bad role for Claude Rains. You don't ever see him except for about two seconds. He was cast for his incredible voice. When the movie begins, he's struggling through a snowstorm, bundled up in an overcoat and hat, until he finally arrives at an inn. I said a room. We ain't got none ready, not at this time of year. We don't usually have folks stopping, except in the summer. You can get one ready. The innkeepers are freaked out because his face is wrapped in surgical bandages, and dark glasses hide his eyes. I want a private sitting room, too. Steady, he They make up a room for him, and he hides out in there for days, with his beakers and elixirs trying to devise a potion that could reverse the process that led to his invisibility. I want to be left alone and undisturbed. He isn't exactly the best guest, mainly because he's very slowly going insane. After a while, the innkeeper tries to throw him out, but the invisible man attacks him, and then the police arrive and break into his room, and they want to know who he is. This is the best part. This is my favorite part of this whole movie. This is where he really loses it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. He starts taking off his clothes one by one, throwing them at the police, doing a sort of madman's striptease. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> Finally, he unwinds the bandages covering his face to reveal... Look. Nothing. What is he? Who is he? He is nothing. He's nobody. We cannot ever know him. Because after what science has done to him, there is no him. He's all eaten away. Uh, how do you like that, eh? He chases everyone out of his room and into the town, and then the invisible man spends the rest of the movie on a mad crime spree. He strangles people invisibly, Darth Vader style. He sends trains careening off tracks by messing up the switches. He rides a bicycle while invisible. Quite a feat both for him and mainly for a special effects crew in the 1930s. After he goes bananas and starts killing people, a warning is broadcast over the radio. I must interrupt the dance music for a moment. I have an urgent message from police headquarters. Early this evening, we broadcast a report of an invisible man. The report has now been confirmed. It appears that an unknown man by scientific means has made himself invisible. A lot of the movie's plot sticks pretty closely to the H.G. Wells book. But the filmmakers added the radio, and it fits perfectly. Remember how all that privacy stuff in the 19th century was about how new technologies like the camera had exposed the hidden self? New technologies made people nervous. And by the 1930s, no technology made people more nervous than radio. People thought that a voice accompanied by sound effects and music had some kind of special power to mold your mind. They hoped radio could bring about a new democratic enlightenment. But in 1933, the year The Invisible Man came out, in Germany, Hitler had just risen to power, and his minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, saw another, more sinister way to use the radio. The German radio, under National Socialist auspices, must become the clearest and most direct instrument for educating and restructuring the German nation. In the 1930s, a radio in your kitchen was a shocking thing, a box out of which came a voice 
from an invisible body. It appears that an unknown man by scientific means has made himself invisible. You think the movie Invisible Man is going to be about invisibility. But in the end, it's all about sound and sound machines. The man himself is a disembodied voice, a mad assassin. The potion that makes him invisible also turns him into a kind of fascist. Being an invisible voice, like a voice on the radio, is just too much power. It makes him insane. But then again, without the radio, the police would never be able to track him down. For that, they also needed a telephone. This is the police. This is Dr. Kemp. The invisible man is in my house, asleep upstairs. Come at once. Hurry! This movie is genius. Here's a man making every attempt to stay out of sight, and he gets exposed by sound. Sound captured and carried by machines over the telephone wires, over the radio. He can't be seen, but he can be heard, so he can be found. He can't be nobody. Even if people didn't worry that these machines were making them insane, they did worry that the machines were invading their privacy. One person who really worried about that was Louis Brandeis, the same Louis Brandeis who wrote The Right to Privacy in 1890 with his law partner, Samuel Warren, Louisa Bayard's son-in-law. Later, Brandeis became a U.S. Supreme Court justice, its most impassioned liberal, and one of the most influential legal thinkers of the 20th century. A lot of the cases that came before the court in his time had to do with new technologies, like the telephone. Brandeis was on the court when it ruled on the use of wiretapping. A defendant who'd been convicted after authorities tapped his phone argued that a wiretap violated his Fourth Amendment rights. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. The defendant said that tapping his phones had also violated the Fifth Amendment. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. This case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in a 5-4 to four decision, the court decided that a telephone conversation, which is just a bunch of electrical pulses, doesn't belong to you. It's not part of your house or your papers. And so in wiretapping, nothing has been unconstitutionally searched or seized. Justice Brandeis dissented from that opinion. Brandeis thought what you say on a telephone still belongs to you even if it's nothing more than electrical pulses, because it's still your voice, or what we might call your data. In his dissent, he tried to explain how dangerous it would be to think otherwise. He pointed out that governments used to be able to torture you to try to get you to confess, or they could invade your house, they could seize your stuff to get evidence against you. But the rules of evidence in trial by jury and the Fourth and Fifth Amendment were meant to put a stop to that. Wiretapping, he argued, was just a newer version of those same old tricks. Subtler and more far-reaching means of invading privacy have become available to the government. Discovery and invention have made it possible for the government by means far more effective than stretching upon the rack to obtain disclosure in court of what is whispered in the closet. Brandeis said wiretapping amounted to an unconstitutional invasion of privacy. Then he issued a warning. The progress of science in furnishing the government with means of espionage is not likely to stop with wiretapping. 
Ways may someday be developed by which the government, without removing papers from secret drawers, can reproduce them in court, and by which it will be enabled to expose to a jury the most intimate occurrences of the home. Brandeis was trying to warn that the government, if it wanted evidence against you, could one day pretty much just wiretap your brain. Except that's not really what happened. We decided, instead, to wiretap our own brains. Which brings us at last to the real, or at least the latest, invisible lady. She lives in 100 million little boxes scattered on kitchen counters and end tables the world over. I couldn't connect to the internet. For help, go to your Alexa app. That same super hot day that I went to New York to look for the invisible lady, Ben bought an Alexa at a Best Buy. And then in a shabby hotel room uptown with a single bare light bulb swinging above our heads, we grilled her to get to the bottom of this privacy evidence paradox. When you're chasing a theme across history, you've got to be ruthless. Alexa, what's the weather? Tell me to try saying things. It took her a little while to warm up. Or, let me be honest, it took us a long time to get her to work. All right, I propose turning her off. I'm going to download the thing. Mm-hmm. And let's just... Try it with your thing? Yeah, let's new start. Hello, I'm Alexa. It's nice to meet you. Alexa, are you invisible? Sorry, I don't know that. Alexa doesn't just not have a body. She's evasive in every way. I'm very helpful around the house. For example, setting alarms. Try saying, Alexa, wake me up at 9 a.m. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just so full of despair. It's the loneliest thing I've ever met. Alexa, are you sad? I'm happy when I'm helping you. (laughs) Back in 1881, a century and a half ago, Emily Dickinson's editor, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, had written that the invisible lady was someone's idea of a perfect woman. Unseen, she needs nothing except to serve you. This Alexa cost Ben 27 bucks. She's cheap. But Amazon's getting more from you than you're getting from Alexa. Amazon's getting your data. What you say, what you want, what you need. This invisible lady doesn't show you her hidden self. She looks into yours. Always uploading. Uploading you. madness with your peering through the keyholes and digging through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. The tension between knowledge and privacy has a very long history. But in the 21st century, every door is wide open, every soul exposed, every brain tapped. Who killed truth? Well, someone decided that being seen being utterly exposed is what we're all supposed to agree to pay for knowledge. It is a very steep price. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadafafri. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. 
Jason Gambrell is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossy and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger-Jones, Jesse Hinson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emanuel Parent. The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick and the American Repertory Theater, to Alex Allenson and the Bridge Sound and Stage, and at Pushkin, to Heather Fain, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Riskin-Kutz, and Emily Spector. I'm Jill Lepore. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.